All right, happy Sunday. No staff? The inmates are running the asylum today? If this all goes horribly wrong, it'll never make it to the internet. I hope you guys are well. Um, I enjoy getting to get up here. It's usually a couple times a year, and but that also means I'm, I'm also out of practice. And it also means I have a lot to say and not enough time to say it, but... I promise we're, we're doing pretty good on time, so I don't think we're going to go long today at all. So, um, It's the second Sunday of Advent. I have uh, traditionally for many years now bought an Advent book for my own devotional reading during this month. I don't know if you're like me. We're so busy. You can just be doing life and Christmas comes and goes, right? And so I found the Advent book is helpful for me because... It slows me down and puts me in the mindset of, of really what's happening, what we're really doing this time of year. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff I'm doing, but gifts and presents and family and dinners and trips and parties and all that stuff. So, But to really what we're doing here in regards to God, our relationship with him, Jesus Christ, right? So I'm glad this year we're doing this Advent series, and this is the second Sunday. We're following, actually, the Episcopal Church's lectionary. So I was given a scripture for today which um, is Isaiah 11. So if you want to turn over there, we're going to be in that neighborhood of that address. Um, And that's kind of cool. And So that's our scripture for today, but our theme is really one of peace. That would be the theme of the second week of Advent is peace. And for me, when when I hear the word peace, I'm thinking shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word that we most often translate as peace. And um, I will give you a little bit more of an explanation on that as we go here. But I do want to give you a little background. So I am, have had a difficult year. I'm not standing before you as a bulletproof Christian who has everything all figured out. I'm more, someone asked me how my heart was and I told them it was tender. They go, oh, that's so great. I go, no, it's tender because it's been tenderized this year. You know that meat thing with all the spikes on it that the meat goes through? Yeah, that's, that's me. Um, it's been a challenging year. And, and my issues that I've developed this year will probably expose themselves somewhere in this talk today. So if you hear them, just let them go. We all got issues, right? All right, I'll try not to, not, try not to make it too personal. Um, but because it's been a difficult year, as so often happens, difficulty often translates into transformation. I feel like it's been a transformative year in my theology, especially in the way I interpret the scriptures. Um, I have discovered, personally, in the last year or two, a fair amount of mis or bad interpretation in my life, in the way I've looked at the scriptures. Um, and I don't want you to think that, you know, there's a, a, a perfect way of knowing the scriptures. I think you should be able to read your Bible and understand perfectly what it says through every verse. I think that's a fool's errand. We're all on a journey in life, right? So even what I understand now probably is wrought with some misinterpretation. But I have a renewed desire to really look at the scriptures well and understand them as correctly as I can for this place and time that I'm in right now. And so, you know, to me, that word that kind of sums all that up is context. I'm interested in context. So when I was given Isaiah 11 for this Sunday, I was like, oh, I read Isaiah 11. It's beautiful. 
You know, it'd be really nice just take those. There's some great scriptures in Isaiah, isn't there? Just take those scriptures and smack them on a coffee mug and do a nice Advent Sunday service for us and just everybody feel joyful and happy and on out the door. But I really wanted us to stop because I think we're going to be in Isaiah for the month and get some solid context on the book and um, and see it for what it really is. One of the things I've learned in my context this um, this year, I was right. Anybody, you know, Jason recommended... It's interesting when you get a Hebrew scholar on your staff, sometimes you listen to what they say. I don't know, I listen to Scott too, don't get me wrong, and Danielle, but he said, he recommended that book, How to Not Read Your Bible. Anybody pick that one up? Mm, that's a dis- disconcerting book. It's not wrong, it's just bothersome when you see some of the basic misinterpretation that it points out in the very early, and I'm not through the book at all. But one of the concepts that is in that book that I really feel is good and I want to share with you today is this idea that the Bible is written for us. Oh, no, is, is, is written, i got to write this down, is written for us but not to us. Okay, and so the idea is, we're going to look at the book of Isaiah today, right? Isaiah is a long book. It starts when Israel was still doing really well, at least um, prosperity-wise, and it prophesies the coming of the Assyrian kingdom and the conquering of the northern ten tribes. And it goes through that process of occupation. And then they're waiting for the Assyrians to go. And then the Babylonians come. And there's, at the end of the book, it's more even about this next kingdom. We're talking hundreds of years pass through this book of Isaiah. And I, wanna, and I just want to throw this little concept out for you. Scholarly, generally well like most scholars don't think Isaiah is one book. It's probably three. So really, we're in first Isaiah today. It's just, it's just too long of a period of time, and there's breaks in scriptures. And if you've never heard that before, it's a little mind-blowing. But I, I don't want to like shake you on that at all, because I don't really, to me, that's not a big deal. If you were to take first and second Corinthians and get rid of them and have one book in the Bible called Corinthians, would that bother me? wouldn't bother me. I probably would have a hard time understanding what happened at the end of this chapter and the beginning of that one. But the general theme and some of the topics would all fit really well and I would be able to understand it. I think Isaiah is, is it's a long time of history here and I think it's important to understand this. So my point with saying the Bible is not written to us but it is for us is that the original author of the book of Isaiah did not have you in his mind's eye when he wrote it. He was thinking about a specific group of people. When I wrote this sermon today, I guess who I had in my mind's eye? You guys. So when the author wrote that down, he wasn't thinking about us almost three millennia later since these words were written. Almost 3,000 years. He had a specific group of people that he was writing to. And that specific group of people, let's call them the recipients of the letter, they probably, when they received this letter and read it, they were not thinking about it the way you and I received the book of Isaiah. They were in a different context. They had been through some stuff. It was very fresh. Their parents had been through some stuff. And so they received these words a lot differently than we do. And that's what I mean by saying the Bible is not written to us, but it is for us. Now, is there some really valuable things that God is speaking to you and I in the book of Isaiah? Absolutely. It is for us. Is it applicable to our context and our life and what's going on now? Absolutely. I think as we read today, we'll see that. 
But it's also important to understand the original writer, the original recipients, they, they had a different perspective on what we're reading than what we are. And I think if we're going to be good interpreters, we need to start a little bit with putting ourselves in their shoes before we move right into our shoes. All right? Um, one of the things I noticed when I, so I read Isaiah 11, and then I started going back, and I started in Isaiah 1, and I've read a lot of Isaiah. I've been a Christian a long time. But never in a whole sitting, I noticed these intense sections of judgment and condemnation from God towards mostly the nation of Israel, and then these amazing, beautiful pictures of hope that were interspersed in the scriptures. And it's so easy to ignore the judgment and the condemnation, if you, that bothers you, which it does most of us. Some people like it, but most of us it bothers. And just focus on the hopeful sections. But it's really important to understand that these two things go together. And really what's happening here is the author, Isaiah the prophet, as he wrote down this section, or maybe one of his disciples, probably in a later section, this is probably Isaiah, he is trying to make sense as to what has happened to them in their lives. This is written down from a perspective as, oh my gosh, what just happened to us? Why, God, did you allow this to happen? I mean, don't we all ask those questions in our lives sometimes? Are you trying to figure out what happened last year? Because I am. Are you trying to figure out what has happened in the last five years? Did something happen really serious and you're now sitting back and looking at it and going, gosh, what the heck happened? Why did that happen? What are you trying to teach me, God? What did I do wrong so I can't not do that again, right? Who didn't sit through the, you know, five years after the Great Recession and go, okay, Maybe we should think about this a little bit, right? That's what people do. They go through stuff, tough, uh, tough stuff in their life, and they think about why it happened, and they think about what they could have did differently. And if they're spiritually minded like you all are, you're trying to figure out what God is trying to teach you and what are the spiritual lessons that you really want to learn or he wants you to learn from these times. That's, that's what probably is happening in the book of Isaiah. They're documenting not only what happened, but they're also trying to process the why and the how and what could we do different here. All right? So I threw a couple of um, definitions up there. Did you notice that you add three letters to the word Advent and it becomes adventure? Now, Advent means the arrival. It means arrival, basically, is what it means, right? But in the context, the Christian context, we think arrival of God and his restored kingdom. Right? So... That first advent was Jesus coming to earth, right? And that was a beautiful thing. And Jason kind of talked about the space in between. We're waiting for the second return of Jesus to come back. The second advent. And when God is going to take all this wrong and fix it. All right? And then shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. And I was explaining to the group, you know, Hebrew has a lot less words than English does. I don't know what the number is, you know, eight, 9,000 words in the whole language. The English language has like 200,000 words. So when you have a Hebrew word, it has a lot more layers of meaning than the English word does. And the Bible interpreters have struggled with this because they'll, they'll take a Hebrew word and it has a lot of options in English. And they'll do their very best to interpret it, but sometimes it gets a little confusing um, in the interpretation. So the Hebrew word shalom means peace but it means wholeness. Do you think of peace and wholeness together? I don't know that I always do, but yeah, I think one of my kids is gone. 
or one of my kids is not talking to me, I'm not at peace. Are you? When they come back and we're reunited and restored, are we at peace? Are we wholeness? Yes. Are we complete? Yes. Do you have peace when something's incomplete? When your spouse goes away for a long trip, does your home feel complete? No. You know, there's a, there's shalom and peace has that wholeness and that completeness, that tranquility element to it. And that's what shalom means. And I think ultimately, big picture for me, God is a God who wants to bring shalom to this earth. I think it started as shalom and it was broken into chaos. And we all live with a fair amount of chaos in our lives. And God, since the beginning, has been on a mission, starting with Abraham and moving through the 12 tribes and moving through Israel and moving through Jesus and moving into our Christianity. And even here today, God wants us to partner with him in bringing shalom to this earth. All right? And yet we live in an earth that's obviously spreading chaos. And unfortunately, even as Christians, sometimes we're the ones spreading the chaos. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. So um, let's go to Isaiah 10 here, and let's just start with some context. So this is written to Israel. So the, the, Bible, the Bible interpreters wrote, the Lord's anger against Israel. Okay? So this is what he's, he's talking about Israel right here in verse 1. It says, Woe to those who make unjust law. To those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? Who will you run for to help? Where will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall among the slain. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. So here are some of the accusations against the Israelites making unjust laws, right? They were issuing oppressive decrees. They were depriving the poor of their rights. They were withholding justice from the oppressed. They were making widows their prey. They were robbing the fatherless. That was what God held against Israel. And that's why Assyria was coming to invade Israel and the land, right? You know, I think so many times, I I don't know about you, I was taught Israel's main problem was idolatry. They got their God worship wrong. They were supposed to worship the Lord, and yet they were worshiping the bull. They were supposed to worship God only, and yet they got sucked into, you know, different worship of the foreign gods around them. And I think that's really a thing. I don't want to discount that at all. But it's not about getting your religion practice just right. If you know your book of Isaiah, you know that God can tells them, hey, they were doing fasting, they just weren't doing it right, right? It wasn't, they weren't doing it right, the heart wasn't right behind it. They were assembling for worship. They were giving their offerings. They were celebrating their celebrations, but the problem was, even though they were a religiously practicing group, they didn't care about their fellow man, right? They were oppressing. They weren't looking out for the poor. They were unjust. They weren't looking out for the widow. See, that's the thing that gets God upset. Not so much that we get our worship wrong. While that is very important. But what can bring God's, I'm not going to say punishment, but I'm definitely going to say discipline, is not loving the weak 
and the lowly among you. And it's not just the poor. It's just your fellow man sitting right next to you. Look at what he says to, about Assyria. This is really interesting. Woe to, to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, and whose hand is the club of my wrath. He's talking about Sennacherib, probably by name, who was the, the emperor of Assyria at that time. But he, what does he call him? He calls him a rod and a club against Israel. God used Assyria as a rod and a club against his own people because they were so far away from the mission of God. And I don't think it was because he was just angry. I think it was to get their attention. And we know God disciplines us, right? You know, I'm sorry if this stuff's a little heavy. My wife goes, you're kind of heavy sometimes, and I am. Sorry. But this is the context. All right, I just want, just want you to know. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not painting God to be any... Worse than he is. This is actually the real context of the Bible. We want to be good Bible people. This is the reality. But I also understand, like, it's hard. Life's already hard enough. I don't need to hear bad news. I want to come to church and get, feel some good news. But you know what? I mean, I think the good news is kind of shallow if it's not based in reality of the bad news. It doesn't have the motion and the energy to get you down the road because if you're like me, your life is full of junk. It's not easy. We are sinners. There's a lot that's not right. You know, we understand oppression because we experience it in our own lives all the time. And that's when the good news really builds hope that can keep you alive. You know, I, I, I'm studying the Bible with a friend right now, and he went to the marriage retreat um, on a couple weeks ago, right? And he and I got together last week for a study, and I was shocked at how full of hope he was from this marriage retreat. He's a young guy, young marriage. I mean, I'm not going to show their stuff, but it ain't easy and it ain't pretty. And he's very open about it. Nothing really in his marriage has changed. They haven't gone to the kumbaya moment. They're still battling each other and dealing with kids and jobs and no money and, and their own personal issues and demons, right? None of that has changed. All those things that made him want to give up are still in his marriage. But he went to this marriage retreat, and guess what he found out? There was other people in the same spot he was. And even though people were in that spot, they were full of love for one another. He was like, I was shocked at how much love was in that room. It's really cool. I know I've been going to these for so long, I think I lose sight of how amazing it is. You know what I mean? And he was like blown away. That marriage retreat filled him with hope. And it didn't fill him with hope because there was an absence of strife in his life. It gave him the hope that propels through the pain and through the struggle and causes you to keep going down the road. And that's what we see in the book of Isaiah. It's tough to see God talk about using a foreign ruler this way. Verse 6, I sent him against a godless nation to dispatch him against people who anger me, to seize loot and snatch and plunder, to trample them down like mud in the streets. Those are tough words. God's using Israel, uh, Syria right there, right? That's what he's doing. And, and you know, when you guys read the Bible, think big picture. Don't try to think like literal soldiers trampling people as, as mud in the streets, right? It's, it's, they're metaphors meant to communicate a truth. The truth is still is real. God is going to use Assyria to overwhelm and defeat Israel. 
But we don't want to get too stuck in our interpretive process that we only see like, oh, he actually did this exact thing that it says right here. It's a metaphor. But look at verse 7. This is really interesting. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. See, this verse is not God. He's talking about Sennacherib. The king of Assyria is going to defeat Israel, but not because God told him to, or he's on a holy mission with a holy edict. He's going to defeat Israel because that's what empires do. He is an empire and an emperor bent on conquest. And he's going to take out the next nation next to him and build his empire. See, he's going against them and God's using him to discipline the Israelites. But that's not what he has in mind. That's not what he is intend. His purpose is what? To destroy and put an end so that his kingdom, his empire, is the biggest one around. And hasn't it always been this way? I mean, from the time of Egypt to the Midianites, right? To the Philistines. I mean, just read your Bible. It's empire after empire after empire. And Israel had their turn during King David and King Solomon, right? And then we go on to the Assyrians and next the Babylonians. And after them, here comes the Seleucids. And after them, then it's the Greeks with Alexander the Great. And then in the time of Jesus, who's the empire crushing and oppressing? The Romans. Because that's what empires do. There is no winners in the empire game. People are commodities and they will get crushed because the goal is to build the empire and people are only used to further that goal. And it doesn't start with the Romans, stop with the Romans, does it? How about the British Empire? How about the Dutch Empire? How about the French Empire? I'm a sailing guy, so I see I, I follow these guys, right? How about the Spanish Empire? Who's the big empire in town right now? Us. We're the world's largest empire. Empires have been a way of mankind since the beginning of time. And that's what they do. But look what he says in verse 8. I love this verse right here. If I'm interpreting correctly, I'll give you a little disclaimer. Are not, all, are not my commanders all kings, he says? That could be Snackerib talking about his commanders. But I think it's basically God alluding to the fact that there is not one person in power on the face of this earth that is not under his reign and rule and control. That gives me a little bit of peace in my life. There's not one person in charge, not one person over me. There's not one person that's ever existed in this world that God ultimately is not ruling over. Nothing is out of the control of God. And while it's hard to, to grasp all this, he's going to use it. He's going to use it to restore his plan of bringing peace. And we'll see this in 11, in, in chapter 11 right here. Now, I do want to just say one more thing about empires. Empire is a temptation for everybody. Um, you know, we've seen these huge countries and they're all empires and people go to war and they're trying to build a bigger empire. I think ultimately mankind is trying to find his own shalom, create his own peace, his own hedge of protection by destroying everybody around them so that they can't take them out. I think people are bent on, you know, rising to the top and being the biggest and the baddest, right? But there's also a side of that where you're trying to be your own God. 
right? You're trying to do God's job in your life by trying to create a nation that cannot be defeated. I've never seen one that's lasted, right? They don't last because, again, they, they don't rely on God and they end up being oppressive. But I was thinking about this. It's not just nations and rulers and presidents. We're all little people here, right? But we could build empires in a lot of different ways. What about big corporations, right? What about small corporations? And I was saying, hey, I'm a business owner. Am I trying to, am I trying to be the biggest, baddest contractor in the valley? Is this corporation trying to be the biggest fast food restaurant and destroy all the others? Is this one trying to be the biggest electronics company? Is this the biggest ooh, home delivery service next day and wipe everybody out? Are we trying to build the biggest empire? Because that's kind of a human nature thing. And the problem with trying to build the biggest and the baddest is, again, people become commodities and they end up getting used in service of the goal. And then I'm driving down the church, down the road, and I'm looking at Desert Springs and I'm going, jealousy probably is more what comes in, right? Because we're not the biggest and the baddest church in town, are we? No, we're going the wrong way if we're trying to be the biggest and the baddest, right? But I don't know if I haven't bought into empire in the church world. That we're trying, if, you know, if God's pleased with us, we'll be the biggest, baddest church. Everybody will flock here. Every, if we're doing it right, this place is going to be packed all the time because that is how you quantify success. That's how you're pleasing to God. Is that you are the one defeating everyone around you. You're better than everyone else. Man, I wonder if I could just be happy with the little bit of God's given me. Right? But, but, so I, I can see that, and I can even think about that a little bit in the early days of the church here, where we were, we were trying to be the biggest and the baddest. And a lot of times people got burnt, crushed under the wheels of trying to do that. I don't want to be an empire for God, but it is our tendency. I want to be a person that spreads shalom and peace and restores relationships and unites people with God. And if God just gives me a little tiny piece to work right here, yeah, I'd like it to be more. It would feel good. But if it isn't, I'm going to be happy with what he's given me right now. And I don't know if that's where you are. I'm just sharing me. There's, I told you some of my issues were going to come out today, so there's some of my issues. Maybe that's just me rationalizing what's happened to me in the last year or so. Let's look at Isaiah 11 here. This is a beautiful scripture right here. It says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, and the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. I mean, that sounds a lot like Jesus, don't it? I think it sounds a lot like Jesus. I'm good with that. Probably... Isaiah and the original readers did not have Jesus in their mind when they heard these words. 
Okay? Just being fair. Does it mean it can't mean Jesus? No, it can mean both. It totally can. It sounds a lot like Jesus. Whoever this is, with a spirit of the Lord, with a spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might, it's good to have might if you're right, a spirit of knowledge and fear, he won't judge the way everybody else judges. He won't get sucked into the empire game that everybody else is into. If you think about it, even the, the disciples, the apostles were into the empire game, right? They want to just have the bigger empire to drive the other empire out. Because, of course, everybody thinks their empire is going to be the good one. Don't they? Yeah, they do. So this is a beautiful picture here. The righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. I love that picture. Give me a coffee cup and a printer. I'm going to put that on there. And then read this. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. A little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together. The lion will eat the straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put his hand in the viper's nest. Neither will they harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Again, I want you to think big picture here. I don't want you to think literal babies in viper's dens. Okay? What's being communicated here, right? There's a spirit of life and, and humanity and community that God wants for us. That is the plan. It's the whole reason Assyria came to Israel. The whole reason Jesus came to this earth. The whole reason he will come again. And the commitment you and I made as Christians to partner with God in carrying out his mission is to create at least our, just our little part, because this ain't happen. we're not able to pull this off. This is a God thing. To create this. You know what I notice in here? Look, look. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie with the goat. The calf and the yearling together. The little child will lead them. The cow will feed. Their young will lie. The lion will eat. The infant will play. And the young child will not be hurt. Those are some beautiful, amazing pictures of what God intends for this earth. I think that's what God intended in the garden. I think this is what was lost. Because what do we end up with? Animosity, enmity, hostility. We live in a world that is at each other's throats. God wants a world where we are what? What are, these things are, they're lying and eating and, and feeding and leading. What are the, but what are the, what's the main word there? Together. They're doing it together. It's not about the lion or the bear or the wolf or the viper or the child. It's not about any one of them is better than another. It's that they are all together. That's what Jesus came. When he came to the earth, he came to restore our relationships he did a little condemning of some religious dudes, right? But generally speaking, they were about dividing into groups. Romans bad, Jews good, religious Jews good, unreligious Jews bad, Gentiles, Samaritans, right? It's a world of hostility towards each other. And Jesus 
rocked everybody's world by bringing them, by not being about the separation and not defining who was better and who was worse and who was good and who was bad. It was all about together. It's crazy. Even our religious world, we love to separate. Sometimes Christians are the worst ones at separating. We separate over everything, over the little things and the big things. There are little things, and they're all big things. But we even are about my church is better than your church, or my church is the only church, and your church, you know, whatever. I think we're missing what the Advent is all about. It's about together. It's about living our lives without animosity, without division, without hatred, without judgment, caring about one another, caring about the oppressed, caring about those, not creating a world or trying to build something that crushes people under their feet. Um, I, I've had to think about this a little bit like because I'm a business owner. And it would be very easy for me, like I have no retirement other than what I make for myself, right? You guys probably know my story. I share it, right? But i got to make it happen for me, right? Because there's nobody for me, right? So I can be all about, uh, i got to make money. i got to get this job. I can't lose money here. i got to, you guys need, uh, 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 no, work. Come on, we got to make it happen. And if we don't do a good job, we're not going to get more jobs. And we're not gonna, then we're all going to starve. Come on, let's go, let's go, let's hustle. Part of that's good. Right. But I'm like, man, am I trying to build an empire that is oppressing people? Am I trying to use my people for my own purposes? Or are we a team that God has put together and each one of these people has been given to me to help them down their road on their journey? I sound pretty good, huh? Don't you like to work for me? I'm kind of a jerk, actually. That's my goal. All right. But that's my, but I, I'm never going to get there if I don't start with that mindset. The people that God has put in my life are a gift. You too. You're not to be used. You're not to be oppressed. You're not to be whatever for my own selfish gain. It's not about me. It is. God takes care of me. My job is to help you on your journey, lift you up, lift them up. We're all in this together. I think that's the healthy way to live our lives. I'm not telling you I'm really good at this. I am telling you that's my goal. I do think that when God told us to go and make disciples, that's probably more what he had in mind. Let's lift people up. Let's bring them close to God. Let's make it about them and God. Let's not lose track of who we are and get all bent on empire, whether it's a big one or our own little personal one. Because that's what happened to Israel, frankly. It's not uncommon for that to happen to us as people. I think this is what ultimately what we're waiting for. So I said this is what we should be doing now. Do I think that we can achieve this goal if we just try really hard and get a lot of conviction and darn you Christians, pray more? I think it helps to pray more, but I think we're in this period of waiting in our lives. We're doing the best we can. We have our goals. We're trying to repent when we get off track and get selfish. But ultimately, none of this stuff's going to turn into this. Isaiah 11 with the lion and the lamb and the ox and the bear and the child and the viper. 
until Jesus returns. But I know God wants me to partner with him in this goal until he gets back as long as I walk on this earth. And I, I, I just think that's, I feel like that's what I'm getting. That's my context. That's my interpretation of Isaiah 10 and 11. So I hope that's helpful for you today. I have a Jesus wall in my house. My daughter doesn't like it. It's right over her desk. I actually took a few pictures down because she called it the Jesus wall. My daughter is an amazing human being. I would not trade her for the world. She runs my office. She hasn't made a commitment to love the Lord yet with all her heart, soul, and mind and strength. I spent many years being bitter over that. But I'm learning to wait. It's not about me. It's about her and the Lord. But one of the things she told me, Dad, can we change the Jesus wall? I look at it every day. So I left one picture up, but I took a few down. One of the pictures I took down, I want to put up for our communion meditation today. This is a picture I love. Um, I, it has a lot of meaning. I know it's really kind of heavy in a lot of ways. But it's the Advent, right? Jesus came, put on skin and bone. And lit a really a simple, hard-working life like you and I are living right now in the middle of this mess all with the goal of this restored kingdom. And he died for us. And I don't know anything that cleared more of the animosity out of the way than his death on the cross. Didn't remove all of it. It's still there, didn't it? But he has removed that hostility between us and God. And then to let us know that he, that wasn't all he was going to do, he resurrected I mean, the cross isn't about the death. It's also about the resurrection. And then he left and said, I will return to make all things new. And I think let's take communion. And, and you want to look at that picture and meditate on it as you take communion today? I think, I think that's, anyway, that's what I thought I'd offer you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. It is powerful. It's hard. It's hard to read it sometimes, God. But it's also beautiful. And the beauty out of the sin and the mess, God, is what's even more amazing. God, I'm so grateful for this people that have assembled. I I have no doubt in my mind, everybody that's here today is who's supposed to be here. I pray, God, that you are glorified, that we understand while there is rulers and authorities in this world, there always has been, there's old ones, there's some now, and there will be new ones. There is none outside of your control your rule, and your reign. And God, we don't know all the ways that you're working, but we know and believe that you are working for our good to bring a restored kingdom. And God, we stink at waiting. But God, I realize no one's waited longer than you have. And even as you brought Assyria to Israel, you had waited decades before that happened. And we, God, want to wait well, love our fellow man, and partner with you in the gospel. We pray for this bread um, and this juice, this, this, Jason called it this meal, which I think is accurate. We eat, God, that reminds us that we have fellowship with you. And that while we may live in a lot of hostility and are tempted, we have no hostility with you. And you have no hostility with us. 
God, we are so grateful. We are that child in the viper's den. We will not be bit. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your son. And it's through his name we pray. Amen.